Well, today it's our privilege to have joining us Dr. Grace Jason Kim. Uh, Dr. Kim, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me. This is very exciting. I love going on these podcasts and talking about my work and my writing and my book. So thank you so much. Would you mind just taking a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work and then maybe also what has inspired you to focus so much on topics surrounding racial reconciliation? Okay. So, um, I guess I'll give a short bio to so people will know who I am. So I was born in Korea and at the age of five, our family, we immigrated to Canada. So I grew up in Canada, did all my schooling from kindergarten and all the way up to my PhD. And then around 2004, uh, we moved down here to the state so I can start teaching. So I've been here since 2004, um, recently became a dual citizen, uh, American and Canadian. And I teach um, theology at Erland School of Religion, which is in Richmond, Indiana. It's a Quaker um, seminary um, at Earlham College. Um, people may know Earlham College better. It's a liberal arts college, but I'm a Presbyterian. so. I, I grew up Presbyterian. I'm ordained uh, PCUSA. Uh, but as most seminaries today, we're very ecumenical. So we've got uh, Methodist, Methodist students, Quaker students, uh, evangelical students, uh, non-denominational. So we've got a lot of diverse students. So it's great to be part of um, Earlham and teach there and also to write. I get a chance to write and speak. So this is all like very exciting. And then what, uh, what got you interested in focusing on topics surrounding concepts of racial reconciliation? Yeah, sorry, I forgot to answer that That's question okay. at the okay. beginning. So, um, you know, being an immigrant, being a, uh, in Canada, Korean-Canadian, um, here Korean-American, and it was interesting uh, in 2004 uh, when I moved to the States, everybody um, called me a woman of color. In Canada, we don't really use those terms. We have, um, what, what terms do we have? Uh, visible minority. So I always grew up being understood as a visible minority. Um, then coming to the U.S., um, being categorized as, as a woman of color. But growing up in Canada in a small town called London, Ontario, it's about two and a half hours from Toronto. It's really hard to grow up um, as a person of color or, or as a visible minority. Um, people in the 70s weren't quite sure who Koreans were. So all the racialization that happened and all the racism, prejudice, you know, I still remember very clearly even the public school system and just being in society as a whole. So it's always been part of um, who I am and my experiences. And so when I start, I started my PhD program, I thought it was very important to address uh, my personal identity and my personal experiences because it's really in our personal encounters and our personal experiences that we come to know who God is. And so my personal experiences of racism, which I continue to experience in different ways and in different situations here in the U.S. and different parts of society. So that's why I find it's very important that we kind of address this, or at least I address it um, in my theological understanding, in my writing, in my speaking. So that's why most of my books, somehow uh, the whole book may not be on racism, but it does touch on um, the racism that happens in our churches 
resources in our faith communities, in our schools, and even in our seminaries. I think it's a very, very important topic for us to discuss. It is causing a lot of division here in American society, and not just here, but around the world. You know, we recently saw the the shooting in New Zealand, uh, uh, in the mosque, uh, 50 people died. You know, those are rooted in the racism. Why, you know, why can't we just accept and love those who are so different from us? So um, that's why um, as people of faith, as a person of faith, it's important to address this. And also just to kind of name it as sin. I think in some um, theological circles, maybe some evangelical circles in the Protestant traditions, etc. We're kind of uneasy or we don't want to call it a sin. But uh, in my book, you wanted to discuss healing a broken humanity. We do uh, understand it as sin. It's a big sin here in the U.S. and around the world. And we have to address it um, head on. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. you're welcome. Yeah, I can go on about racism. but Well, and, and I, I want us to spend some time talking about that and really digging into this issue. And before we do, I think it's really helpful to define terms so that all of our listeners can be on the same page as we talk about it. So I'm curious if you could start off by um, answering how, how would you actually define what racism is and how is it maybe different or not different than terms that get associated with it, like prejudice or intolerance or bigotry. Yeah, so racism is judging someone on one's race. You know, the category of race is a very uh, difficult uh, topic also to discuss because, um, you know, how, how do we define race? So some people actually use the term ethnicity. So we are of different ethnicities. I'm Asian and you may be white. So I think it's uh, judging someone on one's race or ethnicity and and categorizing them in a in a in a very judgmental way. Um, and it is associated with terms like prejudice, prejudice, you know, uh, these uh, preconceived notions and having a, um, a terrible view of the other person. So these terms, you know, they are various terms. They are interrelated. But racism is the basis of these terms that we judge someone by one's race or by one's color or one's ethnicity. And usually the judgment is um, that white is best and then those who are of different color are are bad or are the ones that cause trouble. For example, um, you know, here living in the US, Asian Americans, we have a long history from the 1800s. Um, so, you know, migration, people coming here to work as indentured workers. When they came, people judged them by this, the color of their skin. So, uh, you know, the, we Asians weren't allowed to vote until 1944 or so. We had the Chinese Exclusion Act. Today, you know, under Trump, we have the Muslim ban. But we forget that's just a, a small ban. But there was actually an act that the Congress had passed in 1882 called the Chinese Exclusion Act. So that was banning anyone from China from coming into the U.S. So you, no more Chinese can come in because everybody was afraid of the Chinese. They, you know, saying 
the same thing, the prejudice that they're taking our jobs or, you know, they're bad people, they're lazy people, all these kind of judgments or categories or the stereotyping of these people. So, you know, the and it was supposed to only last till for 10 years, but it got extended and extended until 19, uh, around 44, 43. So that's a long time when the Chinese were banned and those Chinese that were already here, they had to carry papers around, they couldn't buy property, they couldn't vote, um, they needed permission to get married, you know, it, it, it was a terrible situation, but that is racism when we're judging people by the color of their skin and categorizing them as the other or as inferior or as um, foreigners. Here in the U.S., it's a land of immigrants, you know, unless you're Native American, everybody's an immigrant, they are there, we all there came from South America, from Canada. Canada, from North, uh, from Asia, Africa, or Europe. Everybody here has some immigration history. But for some reason, you know, uh, because of racism, we feel the white people are superior. So usually the white European um, immigrants, for some reason, they are Americans, while as everyone else, um, like me, are foreigners. And this category is usually applied to Asians in particular, not so much to Blacks or to Hispanics, but particularly to Asians. So we're considered foreigners. So if there's something that happens wrong in our society, it's easy to blame the foreigner. And you see this all already as a theme in, in the Bible, where people are afraid of the foreigner. Um, in Ezra 9 and 10, um, when the Israelites come back from um, their uh, from the exile when they come back you know there were these foreigners around them and foreign women and they didn't know what to do so they had a big meeting in Ezra 9 10 they decide they're gonna um, tell the foreign woman to leave so they were cast away even the married women even those who had children they were cast away so we see kind of that playing out in scripture and we also see it here when we when something happens here then racism kicks in or we become racist and we're afraid of those who are so different which means um, different from the white dominant norm. Yeah, and uh, man, I I just want to you know thank you again for sharing that perspective. I think that's so important for us to hear. And um, I I'd like to to steer us into talking about um, racism in the church in a little bit. But first, I just wanted to kind of get another question kind of out there right off the bat. And um, you know, the three of us who are on this podcast, we've we've had some uh, in other episodes. Uh, we've had females, um, and we're going to have more people of color, color on, but we recognize we're three white guys that have this podcast, and we want to invite more diversity, but we also realize like the just privilege and biases that we don't even maybe realize is going on uh, just by the nature of who we are. And so, we I wanted to ask you, how do we and other people participate in racism even unknowingly? because of our privilege and I know we all sincerely want to be part of the solution and the stories you just shared like break my heart and I, I really want to know and just want to ask uh, how could we um, possibly be participating in racism unknowingly because of our privilege? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, thank you for bringing that up and also recognizing that you are three white men and I just applaud you for making it more diverse, uh, inviting more women and 
and inviting uh, people of color because, you know, the diversity makes everything so rich. So wherever we are in the church and schools, diversity just adds richness to the conversation and to our knowledge about who God is because it brings in the different perspective. You know, when we're talking about sin, you know, in Christian categories, we talk about um sinning against one another and um you know the sin by um i can't think of the correct term right now um you know you're we sin uh, recognizing that we're sinning but also when we don't do anything to fight against the evil sometimes that's sin. i don't what's that term that i'm looking for sin of omission yeah that's right sin of omission so the sin of omission happens all the time. And I think, um, you know, you're recognizing the the privilege that you have as both men and as, as a white man. There is a certain privilege which many people don't recognize themselves as other as men or as people, as white people. But for you to already acknowledge that's a really one big step because the recognition that you have certain privileges that are not available to people of color, um, then from there you could kind of help in dismantling the racism. Because if we don't do something to dismantle the sin that exists, then we are kind of participating by omission. Um, you know, but there's a million things that, you know, wrong in our society. So, you know, the sexism that is happening, you know, this climate change that's happening, all these are happening, you know, and you think, oh, how can we do everything? How can we fight? But we try our best to do what we can. You know, I do a lot of work with the climate change, with the World Council of Churches, you know, my work um, to fight for equality in, in the gender, you know, man and woman, we need to be equal even in our churches because we're still fall falling behind and and the racism that happens in our churches and the wider society that we really once we recognize that it is sinful then we try to do our best to um, understand if we have a certain amount of privilege then we use that to help fight it and there's many ways you know you doing the podcast and and inviting people of color and even discussing this because i know some people are very uncomfortable they don't want to touch it so they may invite me and then we just stick to the topics that people are comfortable with but you know today in society i applaud people who touch on the uncomfortable topics like racism and sexism that is so prevalent in our society and our churches as we discuss and as we talk I applaud all of you who are part of the process hosts that you want to tackle this question and this important topic and that your listeners are ready to to hear and to learn because this is an enormous topic something that you can't cover in one hour but you know if you tackle some of my books um, the latest one is healing our broken humanity my co-author is Dr. Graham Hill, who's a white male, you know, Australian. He understands his privilege and, you know, he does kind of mention it in the book that he is coming from a position of power and a privilege, but he wants to use it to help us fight. So that's how we kind of engage in the book. Um, and we are able to kind of co-write it from an Australian and from a Western perspective here from the U.S. to tackle this because the racism that we experience here uh, plays out in different ways and also similar ways 
in Australia too. So they're grappling with colonialism, you know, the aboriginals that have um, lived there for thousands of years before the settlers from Europe had come to take over. You know, they're dealing with all this huge problem of racism and how they have mistreated the aboriginals. So, you know, and when we look at our own American history, how, you know, we had a huge genocide of the Native Americans here by the white settlers from Europe. It's part of our uh, of our history. Genocide is rooted in racism. People weren't happy with them. And, and you know, when I don't watch football, but we know of, uh, you know, teams that use these derogatory terms like redskin. And when I teach, I ask my students, you know, where does that redskin come from? Hardly anybody knows. Some people know, but not many. But when you really dig down to, you know, where this term came from, you know, when the settlers came, the white settlers, they it was a genocide. And um, if they killed a Native American and, or an Indian, as they were calling them, you got paid. It was a bounty. And how, how do you get paid? Because you have to show the dead body. So they brought the dead body and they got paid. And then they realized that the bodies were so heavy to carry. So they said, okay, they just bring the heads. So they cut off the heads and brought the heads. And after doing that for some time, they realized the heads were too heavy. And then they said, just bring the scalp to prove that you killed an Indian. So, you know, when we use these terms, we have to be aware of it and how racist um, these terms are. And it brings so much pain to those who we commit racism against. And, you know, just little things like that, we have to kind of change in our society, make people aware that we can't keep using these negative terms against other people. Because when we do, we are, uh, you know, everybody's created by God, but we're putting certain groups down and you know that's not the thing to do as christians yeah man that's that's heartbreaking yeah well, one thing um that that i've heard you say a couple of times now i think especially for white christians in america they would have no problem agreeing that racism was part of our past or even agreeing that there are areas in our society currently where racism exists, but you've said a couple of times about ways that racism is present in our churches. And I think a lot of Christians would either be really surprised to hear someone say that, um, or would just naturally assume, well, that happens in other churches, but not mine. And I'm just curious if you could speak on some of the ways that you see racism active even within the church. Yeah, so, you know, racism plays out in so many different ways. So I've had students, uh, students of color, and particularly women, when, you know, um, they're the minister of the church, a stranger walks in and asks, can I speak to the minister? And, uh, you know, the woman of color who is a minister will say, I am the minister. And they will look at them really oddly because they can't imagine a person of color being a minister, let alone a woman. And they say, no, 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 we're looking for the real minister. Oh. So, you know, examples like that, that is racism that uh, somehow a person of color is can't be a minister because, you know, they keep telling the narrative that Jesus was a white man. And... 
you know, if Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you know, he wasn't a white man. He was probably pretty dark. And when he fled, when his family fled to Egypt as refugees, you know, for him to be blended in and for him not to stand out because they were out to kill everybody, all the kids, he must have been able to blend in. So he probably was a darker skin. So most scholars will say he was a darker man. But we make him into a white man because the artists in Europe decided to make him into a white man. So white became the standard and white was the best. So we have to be careful how we even view who God is. God who is spirit, we kind of categorize him as an old white man sitting on a throne in the sky. So it is kind of, we've, it's kind of in our Christian discourse that we be, we made white better than everybody else. So Jesus becomes white, God becomes white. So it's played out in that way. And then even in the churches, because that's so ingrained in our understanding, in our own theological and in our own faith journey, we just feel like a person of color can't be the minister. Or another example will be uh, racism is happening in the church against certain groups of people because, you know, the prejudice is there, you know, they're, they're bringing in different forms of worship. People get so afraid. Oh, the black people are bringing in their black music. You know, they feel threatened all of a sudden. Or the Asians are doing something weird in the church. They're cooking in the church and smelling up the church. People get afraid of these different differences and they can't seem to embrace. I'm not saying everybody does, but there are pockets of people who are so racist. They believe it has to be this white Eurocentric way of worshiping or way of reading scripture or way of understanding God and anybody else, the way Africans understand God or South Americans are all kind of wrong. So racism plays out in that way. I had a young Korean American student who was a pastor of a church and she experienced a lot of racism from the church members. So she went to her senior pastor, who was a white male, and complained and said, you know, people are being racist towards me. Can you help me? And this happens to some Asian groups, too. The pastor turned to the young Korean-American woman and said, it can't be racism because you're white. So in certain ways, uh, and and when we look at the history of Asian-Americans, we become white when it's convenient, and then we become people of color. So the white people have this mm-hmm. way of categorizing us. And so there's another term in sociology called honorific whites. So for some reason, Asians, because we're this ideal immigrant group, which is also a false notion, but a sociologists have used um, categories uh, like honorific whites. So if they need us to be white, so that other people of color can say, oh, just be like the Asians and you'll you'll be rich and you can go to the top schools and you won't have any problems. So these terms are kind of used and it's very race, racialized terms and it gets played on the church because the church is not a house of saints, we're a house of sinners. So there is so much brokenness even in our churches and I know people and, uh, and of course, there are fantastic churches, too. So I'm not saying every church is racist or the people in, in all the churches are experiencing it. But there are enough because we are um, not a house of saints, but 
house of sinners and there is this brokenness uh brokenness of our church members people hurt by the church because of racism and they'll never go back they said they, they won't go back they didn't think that the church of all places will treat them like that but we continue to do it over and over again and some people in the church are afraid to speak up about the racism that happens so it just continues it gets sweeped under the rug and even ministers are afraid to even preach about it. Um, I haven't really heard that many sermons from a white person talking about racism. I've heard plenty from actually African-Americans. Um, Asians, we're, not, we're a little bit timid ourselves too. But, you know, we're not dealing with it. I haven't been to a Bible study where, you know, we're dealing with racism. Whether, you know, there's so many uh, of those examples, even in scripture, how we treat the foreign woman and how we treat those who are so different, you know, the Samaritans, how people are treated. So we see all these themes in the scripture. We we deal with those themes, but we fail to connect it. You briefly touched on this, um, but I, it seems like in my experience in a lot of American churches, uh, a lot of that are primarily white fail to take into to consideration the power dynamics in play in racism. And so often, a lot of times when you talk to people in the church about racism, it's very personalized and people think, well, I don't remember ever, you know, judging someone or being prejudiced against someone based on race or ethnicity, but the conversation never skews towards uh, systematic racism or the power dynamics which is strange because most churches are pri- primarily white. And so the pi- the power dynamics are shifted towards Caucasian, you know, men and women. So why do you, why do you think so often in the conversation, in the discourse, we sometimes ignore systematic or the power dynamics at play? Uh, because I think, you know, people like to say I have a black friend or I have an Asian friend and, and they, that dismisses all the racism that they've been a- involved in um, systematically. So the racism is so uh, ingrained in our society as a whole. You know, we have the prejudice. We're afraid. We're told, be afraid of the black man, right? Or um, the stereotyping of Asian women as, you know, obedient and this hypersexualization of Asian women. Because, you know, at the beginning of the immigration of Asians, not many women came. Um, many of them were just men who came and they were working as cooks or uh, on the railroad or in, in the mining, the gold mine. So few, only a few women came. And when they came, you know, they were put into the roles of um, prostitutes. And so this hypersexualization of Asian women. So there are these stereotypes and the racism that ha- is going on. And it's really embedded in our society. Um, Jim Wallace uh, wrote a book a few years ago called the America's original sin. This whole country is built on racism. Mm. You know, when we think about the genocide that happened and then, you know, the slavery, um, you know, bringing Africans here as slaves and, and, and using them for hundreds of years as slaves, you know, something like that can only happen because racism is so embedded in our society that, uh, you know, blacks aren't fully human, 
that the lesser being, uh, Christians, white Christians kept quoting scripture, you know, slaves, be obedient to your masters. You know, people yeah. have used and abused scripture to legitimize anything that they wish to do. And and then when the, uh, you know, the land with Mexico, we took all their land, you know, all of Texas and all that southern border, you know, once belonged to Mexico, but we we didn't like the Mexicans. We took advantage of them. So the Mexican wars, and you know, still always suspicious of them, you know, that they're going to take our jobs and all the migrant workers are horrible. They're evil. And the narrative keeps getting told over and over again, uh, even in our present society. So we have all these narratives and it's so embedded. It's so systematic that it just gets pushed on even to our churches. So we really need to dismantle, really tackle this head on, understand how this American country was built on that first, you know, they came and wanted to kill off every Indian. You know, I think right now the population, we only have 2% left after the white people came. That's horrible. Where we killed the majority of them. And, you know, some of them, you know, also with Christians, you know, we try to convert them and all the horrible narratives that happened. But recently in the Presbyterian Church, we had an anti-workshop, anti-racism workshop, and um, two Native Americans came uh, to share their stories. You know, it's heartbreaking. The community, they're still suffering after all this time of genocide happening. The, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole community being killed off, their families being lost, their land being taken. You know, we keep taking all their land and we want to drill that pipe, I don't know, the oil, whatever pipeline, Mm -hmm. you know, on their land and they're protesting, but we don't seem to care. All those things can only happen because of the racism that we have towards one another. So you asked a very important question. I don't have the whole answer of how we can dismantle it, but it is really systematic and we and we need to kind of address it and keep talking about it. And particularly people of faith, that's part of our duty that we kind of do this. So, you know, the, the two commandments, um, you know, love God and love, love your neighbor. We can't even seem to do that. We're so suspicious of each other. You know, we get afraid of of each other because of all the stereotyping that happens, all the racism that is embedded. So this is a very, very important topic for our church today, and I hope churches will will read and, and reflect and have Bible studies and be in the marches and, and speak up, because it needs to happen with the people of faith. When it comes to this idea of power, I thought one thing in uh, your book healing our broken humanity that was really interesting and helpful language for me was you guys talked about how a lot of racism comes down to the fear of losing power uh, or, or the fear of those in control losing power, which I even find it interesting how in our current political climate where the term racism is being used so often that the the, cur- the current president was even voted in under a slogan of make America great again, which has the subtle message of go back to how things used to be. And, and I wonder if you could just maybe talk a little bit more about that, that role that power does play in leading to racism and also maybe how you see that 
even present in churches. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, make America great again. I think he just meant uh, make America white again. You know, he wants to make it white. He wants to get rid of all the Mexicans because we're afraid of them, get rid of all the immigrants because we don't need them. That's why he keeps, I can't believe he's still talking about the wall. You know, the wall, <laughs> there's already a wall there. I've taken students down there to see the wall, but somehow that wall isn't good enough for him. He wants to spend so much money rebuilding that wall. But anyway, um, this power, I think is very important. So even in our book, we have a chapter called Relinquishing Power. So those who have power, so Graham talks about his position as a white male, um, how much um, power that, that, that he has. So when you are in a position of power and you have power, it's important that you, we kind of give up that power so that those who don't have power can have more agency and more power. So we have a chapter called Reinforce Agency. When we think about that, we think, oh, why? what does it mean we have to give up power? You know, when we think about Jesus, he gave up his power so that we can have power too. Um, in many of the feminist circles, we talk about empowering one another. We want to empower the women who are voiceless or uh, the, the women of color. Um, when we recognize that we hold power, we want to distribute that power so that there we can work towards more equality in our society. And when we are trying to do that, that will help us in fighting against the racism. So the other book um, that I co-wrote, The Intersectional Theology, I co-wrote with Dr. Susan Shaw. You know, we're, we're understanding that as a person, there's so many dynamics to a person. So, you know, some people see me as a, a Korean woman some or a woman. Some people see me as a Korean. Some people see me as educated. Some people will see me as able. Some people will see me as um, heterosexual. So there's so many categories that a person has. And we recognize those different categories. That's why it's hard to talk in kind of a homogeneous way. We're very, you know, we have multi-identities, uh, whether we're educated, whether we have wealth or whether, um, you know, we're white or black or Asian. Oh, there's so many categories or identities. And so certain categories have more power. So those who have more power, it is usually the white male heterosexual that has the most power, the, the most privilege. So if you are in that situation, which Graham also found himself as a white male heterosexual, somehow we need to give up that power so that we can redistribute that power and give agency though, to those who are so pushed um, and so marginalized in our society. You know, marginality is a term that we uh, theologians may be using to understand how we are kind of pushed to the outside. So we want to give power to those who have been pushed to the outside to bring them back in so that we can share in this um, agency and, and, and work towards more justice. Which is exactly what 
Jesus talked about all the time. Yeah, all the time. But for somehow, you know, many preachers distort it, many believers distort it, because once you have power, you want to maintain it. People like to keep the status quo. Jesus came to disrupt the status quo. That's why everybody was so upset at him. And then they eventually wanted to crucify him because he had upset the status quo. If you are a person with privilege and power, you don't want to upset the status quo. You want to maintain it so that's why we don't want to talk about it in our churches we you know our churches here in north america are still white but when we now look at the trend we know like globally you know europeans are they're losing their faith in christianity or in god Uh, people aren't coming to churches that much Uh, many of the big beautiful churches are becoming more like museums and art galleries so we have to understand that the churches are growing in the global south for some reason you know People of color are are going to the churches, and you're seeing that here even in the U.S. So a lot of things are changing. We have to embrace the change. We have to embrace uh, how people of different ethnicities and backgrounds can worship together. One book I co-edited with um, Dr. Jan Aldridge uh, Clanton is called Intercultural Ministry. So that tackles the question of, you know, we're becoming less and less monolithic churches. The white churches are now no longer all white. People of color are coming into the churches. How can we hold worship where everybody feels welcome and be part of the community that we can kind of practice hospitality? Even in this book, uh, Healing Our Broken Humanity, hospitality is a very, very important thing because once you're able to break bread with one another, you recognize we're all just brothers and sisters, no matter how we look on the outside, you know, we're all the same on the inside. So this hospitality is very important, how we break bread with one another. That needs to be done in our churches, that needs to be done in our families, in our neighborhoods. Because once you break bread, you realize we're just human beings, all the same, created by God. You, You mentioned your book, Intersectional Theology, and I wanted to ask just maybe one more question about that. As a pastor who has grown up in predominantly white churches my whole life, one of the things that I see often is white churches that have really, really good intentions and desires to become diverse. Uh, But the way that that plays out is usually them asking questions Uh, that even though they wouldn't use this language, essentially say, how do we get not people who are not white to come experience our white church? And even usually says, okay, well, maybe what we'll do is hire some non-white staff members to come help facilitate white church. Uh, And I feel like that strategy usually comes because so many of us don't experience intersectionality. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about what that means, intersectionality, and how lack of it has contributed to racial division and maybe kind of paint the vision of what it could look like. Yeah, so intersectionality, um, it's a huge topic. So um, people can um, actually go and read the book. But it's also talking about there's really no single um, access uh, or single issue 
in our society. Everything kind of interconnects. So this racism is somehow connected to gender too, because at the bottom of the pole are the women of color. And even among the women of color, uh, black women will say they're at the bottom of the pole because they are black. So the higher up, the lighter skin you are, the better off you are. So the intersection of these are, are all, they're not single act, single issues, but they're multiple uh, issues. And we need to kind of deal with them um, kind of all together. So it's not just the racism, but it's also the sexism and the classism. And so in the white churches, probably most of them are kind of middle class white people. So then it's harder for those who are poor to come into the church and feel welcome. So we have to address this whole issue of how we can kind of welcome those who are so different from us, those who are so poor, because we don't really like to have poor friends, right? We like to just have rich friends because then they might buy us dinner or buy us lunch. So this intersectionality, recognizing that all these issues are connected and we have to address it. And part of the inter intersectional theology is that it's really a praxis oriented and all of it leads to social justice. So whatever issues that we're dealing with, the social economic issue, the 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 gender issue, the sexuality issue, the ethnicity and the race issue, that we really want to work towards the social justice. So, I, you know, these white churches, because I'm not white, it's hard for me to talk about it, but somehow they need to uh, recognize that these issues are interconnected, have a outreach or maybe some welcoming that someone like me will feel welcome because Someone like me, when I go to a predominantly white church, I feel a little out of place. Sometimes I feel threatened because I feel like everybody's staring at me. So somehow we have to address this. And I, I don't know if I have all the right answers, but recognizing that somehow these need, that all these issues and how we engage in the intersectional theology will lead to some social justice. But there, you know, we we need to kind of make people feel welcome. When you ask people why they keep coming back to church, a lot of them will say because they find a community. And unless uh, a non-white person can find a community in the church, they may visit and they'll never go back. So somehow we have to be able to welcome and make someone like me not feel like an oddball in the church. Because when I do go into the whole church, I feel like everybody's staring at me. Unless I'm the preacher, that's okay if everybody stares at me. But if I'm not <laughs> the preacher and I'm just visiting, then it does make me feel awkward. So we right. have to keep those in mind. And, you know, I'm just one Asian person, but I don't know how Blacks feel and everybody else. But, you know, something, we need, it needs to be addressed. Um, and we need to be have. You know, having a, a welcoming, I don't know, so that maybe hospitality, something needs to be done. Well, and what what I thought was so helpful from from that book is you, I felt like it really challenged me of in order to experience intersectionality, we have to go out of our way to intersect with people who are different than us. And um, I think that's even part of the problem of what even what you talked about of feeling like you know I go into a place and everyone stares at me because they don't have relationships or intersect with people like you in their normal life and I've even come to learn the more that I intersect with those that are different than me the more it completely changes the way that I think about how 
we do things in church or how we uh, read the Bible together or how I think about God, that that all shifts the more that I experience that intersectionality that you talk yeah. about. Yeah, uh-huh. and we talk about how um, intersectionality will help us understand Scripture because we feel like um, Scripture was written and then, you know, we can't tackle some of these the issues that come in this in the Bible, but you know, intersectionality helps us recognize that when we use the different lenses, either from a woman's lens or an African American lens or an Asian lens, it gives us a deeper understanding of who God is, as God is revealed in Scripture. You know, some of us uh, as pastors, you know, we feel like we figured out who God is, so we understand God, and so we're going to preach about God. We know everything. But God is this infinite being. We're finite. We will never understand who God is. We'll never come to it. Augustine, a a famous theologian, said, if you know God, then that is not God. Right? So we can't, you know, we we don't understand the fullness. So that's why the intersectionality, the the diversity all helps us when it comes to experiencing God, understanding God as found in our scripture, because we need the different lenses. So even as young millennials or so forth, you know, your experiences are all different, but these all help. The intersectionality all helps us to come to a deeper understanding of our creator, our God, who loved us so much and continues to love us. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, once I write a book, I sometimes forget about what I wrote in the book. I'm on to the next topic. So <laughs> thank you for reminding me of what uh, was in the book and the different topics. So thank you. It seems uh a lot of times uh in the church or in society at large there's not a lot of proactive steps towards racial reconciliation because at least from my perspective when i look on social media or when i hear people talking about it there seems to be this insistence upon people saying things like well you know i don't see color and so like like in my life i don't see race or People insist upon saying things like, you know, like, well, why can't we just all get along? Why are we, why are we even talking about this? If we just, you know, be nice and get along, it should be fine. And it's, it just seems to be a a way of ignoring the conversation. And I would just love to know from your perspective, why saying things like that or rushing towards, uh, you know, let's just all get along. Like, why can that be the wrong approach? Because it's easier said than done. So those people are saying, you know, I don't see race. It, you know, why can't we get along? Majority of them are it's just long, it's just talk and, and no action. It is hard work to get along. We have to figure out how, uh, you know, now we're in such a multicultural society. People are continuing to migrate and they'll continue to migrate even more. We have climate refugees. We have uh, religious refugees. We have so many refugees coming and it's just continued to be diverse and people are now having intermarriages. So we have mixed race, mixed, mixed race children. You know, it is so diverse. So we ask ourselves in this diversity, how can we live with one another? How, you know, how is it that I'm not going to be fearful of the people who are the other or those who are so different from us? How can we engage in hospitality, in love, in reconciliation? You know, reconciliation is a key thing today in American society because we feel there is so much brokenness with the genocide, with the slavery. And then when we think about Asian Americans, you know, they were brought over also as indentured 
indentured workers, which is uh, you know, close to slavery. It's not slavery, but some people will even argue that it is. So this indentured workers where they didn't have the freedom to, they couldn't pay back uh, the debt that they incurred coming here. So they were never free um, to move around and look for a better job. They were kind of stuck there. Many people just died like that. So, you know, we have to deal with these issues and it's hard. So, you know, when people say I don't see color, there is color. So we have to deal with it. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, you know, people. Some people are white, and some are black, and some are Asian. You know, yellow or whatever color you want to say, or brown. So we have to deal with it. Uh, and the diversity of this is is so good. How can we keep saying like we gotta understand that America, as what Donald Trump, you know, make America great again, or make America white again? I think that's what he actually meant. Why is it that white is good? You know, why is it black good? Or was it, why is it yellow good or brown good? We have to question those things and work towards, there is that this diversity. How are we going to live together? When we, you know, the world is getting smaller and smaller. So, you know, today I can fly around the world and half a day can be, uh, I don't know how long it takes, maybe um, 18 hours, 16 hours and I could be in Asia somewhere. It's, it doesn't take long. So when we look globally, 50% of the world, or a bit over 50, are Asians. Half the people are like me, right? So, you know, we're flying all over the place. People are now migrating and living in different places. How are we going to, it's not white. White is very small minority. But for some reason, we feel like all around the world, white is the best. You feel that in Asia, you feel that in Africa and South America, you know, everybody looks up to the white people. They're the smartest, you know, they're the most educated, blah, blah, blah. So we somehow privilege them and, and they're up in the hierarchy. So looking globally, half the world is Asian. So how are we going to live with one another? We have to deal with this, with the statistics. You know, how are we going to recognize God who loves all of us? It doesn't matter what color we are, what ethnicity or, or race. So, yeah, I don't know if I addressed fully no, the you did. question no. you, you were asking, but this is, it, we have to deal with it. We have to talk about it. We have to figure out how we are going to live because if we don't figure it out, we're going to end up killing each other. And that's happening in our streets. It's happening in our churches. You know, people are coming in and killing. So it's something, it's a, it's a very important issue. You know, people going in the synagogues and killing, people going in the mosque and killing. Yeah. We have to be able to deal with the racism. Absolutely. And uh, we're reaching the end of our time. So I just wanted to wind down um, and, and thank you again for, for this conversation. It has been uh, just amazing and eye-opening and uh i mean some of the stories have been heartbreaking and it's so important um and uh so one of the main things that we like to do on our show is talk about what better questions we could be asking that do a couple things that bring unity and that call people into action and i think you've already there uh just in that last answer you gave you listed off question after question that i think are are amazing and so i would encourage our listeners to just kind of hit that rewind back 30 seconds and just like re-listen to some of those questions again like how are we going to do this and what can we do uh to to, to you know be put into action and to to be focused on reconciliation and unity because you know that's one of the things that jesus prayed for was that we would be one 
in the same way that he and the father were inextricably linked, um, that we would also. And so I just, I wanted to ask you, um, like maybe if you could even dream a little bit or speak to some amazing congregations that you've even seen or been a part of, but like, what is a vision for what a church congregation could look like that truly fosters real racial reconciliation? And I know it's got to be more than some of the attempts I've seen where you just hire a person of color on staff and call it good. Like, what does it really look like? What's the, the goal we could all be shooting for in our congregations? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think, you know, worship is so key to a church. So, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. It feels like the whole week activity leads to the worship. So most people just attend the worship. So worship is such an important part of one's faith and one's uh, participation in the life of the church. I think in the time of worship, uh, as pastors and worship leaders and people of faith, how can we worship God as all people? So my question would be how, and I've seen different forms of worship where I have felt so welcomed, where there is so much diversity of how we worship, the expression of worship, the way you sing, the types of songs, the prayers. I think we can be very creative. Um, There's no limit to how we can praise God and thank God and be in worship. So that will be one way, you know, how, and I think there are churches who are doing it and it's fantastic to see and people um, love that kind of life. You know, one of my, my oldest kid is at Johns Hopkins um, Junior can't believe he's a junior already. So he's wow. junior, and um, he says um, he attends a church, and it's mostly white, but he feels welcome. There are Asians, and there's Blacks. There's other Hopkins students there because it's close by, but he feels welcome. And I think that's important because if he didn't feel welcome, every Sunday morning, whether I'm preaching or not, I'm, asked, I'm texting him, are you at church? Because, you know, when kids go off to college, they're not going to church. But for some reason, he he keeps going back because he feels welcome and part of the community. So I think building the community, uh, no matter what race, ethnicity, gender you are, what socioeconomic status you belong to, those are those key things of why people keep going back. And we know young people aren't going to church. So, you know, these things are all important in the life of the church and how people are going to stay in the church and keep coming back. So, yeah, so that's my hope that people will think of different and creative ways to welcome and and the worship can be so exciting that people of different ethnicities and backgrounds will keep coming back. As we get towards the end, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the Bible. And I heard you briefly touch on this earlier and it got me thinking, uh, obviously racism is a big problem in the church in general, especially on like interpersonal levels. But I feel like from talking to a lot of people um, and friends, another part of this has to do with the Bible itself and a lot of the troubling aspects to scripture and how the Bible doesn't seem to outright condemn slavery and there's slavery in the Old Testament and there's a lot of tribalism and a lot of hostility 
towards other nations from Israel's perspective and vice versa. And I would just love to know from your experience, how have you been able to create a healthy relationship with scripture when oftentimes when you read it, especially from our culture today, it seems so troubling, the things we read. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, and, you know, there are those who are so upset with it that they won't read it anymore. They'll toss it out. Right. Uh, but, you know, we encounter God in different ways. So um, in our conversation, you know, we experience God's spirit with us. In worship, we experience it. Um you know, in, in our walk with nature, there's so many ways to experience God. And another way is through scripture. So scripture itself, as you mentioned, there's so many troubling passages, you know, God telling the Israelites, go kill everybody. And it's not just the people, it's killing all the animals to every living thing. So it's harsh. So some of it's harsh. So we read it. And for me, I keep in mind, the, the whole scope. Why is it given to us? It, it reveals to us who God is, uh, but we'll never know the fullness of God. It also reveals to us the people of God and how they've sinned and fallen into sin over and over again. You know, raping people, raping the woman and the men too and killing and the slavery and, and the sexism. It, it just war. There's so much bad things. So it reveals the sinfulness of human beings. And but it also has hope. It also provides a grace. It also reveals a love. So I kind of look at it in the more wider perspective and how it still is um, a source for me to preach from. I'm preaching most Sundays. Uh, there is still this power of God's love that you read in scripture that in light of all God's love, then we recognize how sinful we are, that we've misread scripture and said, oh, we can have slavery and misread. And yes, we can engage in war, misread and say we can engage in genocide, etc. So, um, that's how I approach it. And for me, it's still a very liberative way, liberative book for me, uh, because I recognize, you know, my own sinfulness as an individual and as people of faith, how we fall into sin all the time. But then the grace of God is sufficient for us, us measly people, that the grace of God is sufficient for us. And that's still the good news. So we can't toss it out. We still need scripture. We read it. And it's a matter of interpretation, how we're going to approach scripture and interpret it and learn from it and see God's revelation in it. Well, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. I just wanted to end with this last thing. I think for me in particular and lots of other Christians I've talked to, one of the most difficult things with this topic of racism is sometimes we we hear a lot of the things that you've said to us so far and we say, okay, like I, I get it. I understand it's an issue. But then the question becomes, what do I do? Like I feel so so powerless to change things, or I just feel ignorant of steps I can take. 
And I think that's one of the things that was so helpful about healing our broken humanity is that it had very practical steps in it. And I know that uh, obviously we don't have time to walk through all that. And I want our listeners to go read the book themselves. But I was wondering if maybe you could just briefly mention some of those practical steps and then also talk about other uh, places our listeners can go to dig more into uh, your work to really start to figure out what are some of the steps they can take to begin addressing this issue. Yeah. So thank you. That'll be a good place to end. So, you know, we begin the book about reimagining the church. I think, uh, you know, I've kind of talked about it in the podcast already, but really reimagining and how we can become a church that embraces everyone. One of the other books um, that I wrote is called Embracing the Other. It came out in 2015. Um, Erdman's published it. So that addresses how can we embrace those who are so different from us. So that's an entire book on that. But the healing of broken humanity, you know, we can reimagine how the church can be. And the next chapter is actually Renew um, Lament. I've spoken on this book on many, many occasions in different places. And the lament is the one that people are so intrigued by. I think it's because we as a church have kind of lost this tradition of lamenting, uh, of crying out to God in our pain and our sorrow. We see this in the Old Testament and in in the New Testament, but we as a church have kind of forgot about this. So it's a good reminder for people of faith that we really need to cry out to God and lament and and ask God to forgive us. So those are all kind of important themes. You know, we need forgiveness. We need to kind of restore the justice and, and practice hospitality, which is so lost. And then when we're talking about giving out power, we want to give agency to those who don't have the power. So though, you know, these are all kind of important steps of how we can kind of heal the broken humanity, work towards reconciliation, work towards building relationships. Because at the end of the day, the church is just relationships with one another, right? And as we build a relationship, then we get to worship with one another. So relationship is important. Sometimes I'm so fed up with people that I just, you know, even with friends too, you know, you just want to live by yourself, you know, be an island to yourself. You know, you want to be like a hermit, but we're not hermits. We're called to be living in community. Uh, When two or more are gathered, you know, there is God in the midst of us. We are called to be together. And the key is to be able to live with one another and not kill each other. And sometimes when when people hear me about, you know, not killing each other, they think I'm joking. But it's because it's happening. You know, I do mention it, that we need to live in peace and live in harmony and live embracing one another and, and, and hugging and, and, and and breaking bread with one another. So I hope people can kind of read the book. Our our hope was that um, it can be used as a study um, for for churches and for communities to kind of work towards um, healing the brokenness. You know, we have um, handouts in the book that you can use questions, etc. And, you know, we for the intersectional theology, that was a very introductory book. So we want people to recognize that this is, you can live it out in the churches. And then one book that came out, I think last year is called Homebrewed Christianity, 
homebrew homebrew guide. Now I don't remember what it is. Homebrew guide, homebrew Christianity's guide to the Holy Spirit. It's a long name. It's part of the podcast you may have run across. Homebrew. Yeah. Christianity podcast. So I think there's like 10 out 10 books. So I wrote the one on the Holy Spirit. And so I'll just end with that. But, you know, these are all difficult things, um, you know, to lament and to forgive and, you know, to restore justice and practice hospitality. These are all hard. But I think at the end of the day, we cry out to God and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us because we can't do it by ourselves. So we ask the Spirit, fill us and fill us and come into our lives so that we can live out this calling to live life together. So I'll just leave it with that. So people can go to my website or read some of the books and engage. And I would love to hear from everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's such a joy to speak with you. Um, and you're so interested in these topics. You know, we could talk all day about it. So thank you for being so gracious and for the invitation and, and engaging with my book. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, I would love to do it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And that was another episode of the Better Questions podcast. If you really enjoyed this conversation, make sure to like it and subscribe on YouTube or on any of your podcast feeds. And we really encourage you to share either the video clips or the podcast link on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever your primary social media is, and uh, help get these better uh, conversations out there for more people to listen to. So see you again next week.